a Hasidic story. When the seer of Lublin was a child, he lived near a forest. And almost every day, the young boy ventured off into the woods by himself. His father, who was basically a tolerant and understanding man, didn't want to interfere with his son's daily excursions. But to be honest, he was concerned. He knew all too well that the forest near their home could be dangerous. And so one day the father pulled his son aside and said, I noticed that every day you go off by yourself into the forest. And he continued, I don't want to forbid you from going there, but I want you to know that I'm worried about your safety. The father then added, why is it that you go there? And what is it that you're doing in the forest? The boy responded, I go into the forest to find God. His father was deeply moved by his son's spirituality. That's beautiful, my son, he said. And I am pleased to hear that you're doing that and searching for God in the forest. But don't you know, God is everywhere. God is the same wherever you go. God is, the boy responded, but I am not. The spiritual quest is not about finding a new forest or even a different and safer forest, but instead about finding a new self. It is about changing ourselves. Every day we are different, and every day we have to start that search anew. The search is about making ourselves different each and every day. And that, to be honest, is confounding and exceedingly difficult, most especially given the times we currently find ourselves in. How do we even get up each morning and go out into the world when confronted with such uncertainty? Every day there seems some new bit of evidence or advice about when to wear masks or how many shots to get. Is it advisable to go out to a restaurant or Yom Kippur services? Is it okay to go to get together with friends now that the Delta variant is spreading? Is the forest safe or dangerous? Last night we tackled the question of how do we live through change? And the answer was, or to be fair, my answer was, embrace it. Make it your own. This morning's question is more personal. How do we deal with uncertainty? How do we continue to wrap our arms around life when faced with uncertainty after uncertainty after uncertainty? And the answer is by changing ourselves. The problems and challenges of the past year are here to stay. We naively believe that this high holidays would be the same as 2019 and that 2020 would be just a blip. We thought this year would offer us the opportunity to reflect on what we learned during the pandemic, not that we would still be in the midst of it. 
Let's be honest. We will be living with COVID for the foreseeable future. And so we have two choices. Pretend like it's no big deal and will go away soon, or face the painful truth that our present reality is going to be part of our lives in some way, shape, or form for years to come. We will be wearing masks for far longer than we ever imagined. We'll be monitoring infection rates for years to come. And this acknowledgement that the end is not yet in sight creates tremendous uncertainty and unease. Of course we would all prefer that our lives could go back to those days when we did not wonder whether or not the person we brushed up against is vaccinated or not whether talking to an unmasked stranger in the supermarket line is dangerous or not. But the only way, the only way to deal with such unpleasant realities is to acknowledge them. The only way to tackle our fears is to own them. Head into the forest. Not to escape the world, but to discover a new you. We can change the world a little bit, but we can change ourselves a lot. But let's first talk about changing the world. There are so many problems our world is facing, and I'm sure each of us has a very, very lengthy list. I explored a number of these contemporary challenges on Rosh Hashanah, but my question on this Yom Kippur is not so much what these problems are, but how we can face them. And here is the surprising answer. Get angry. Ignite action. Now you might be surprised to hear me say this, but I think we need to rediscover the right kind of anger. We need to recover the sense that we can change things, that our seemingly insignificant actions to write a new course for the world. We are not allowed to say, it does not matter what I do. We must reclaim the passion of the prophets of old, who so felt the urgency of the problems in their own day, that they sacrificed almost everything else in order that others might take up God's call. And this morning, we read the words of Isaiah, and he said, is not this the fast I desire? To break the bonds of injustice and remove the heavy yoke, to let the oppressed go free and release all the enslaved. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to take the homeless poor into your home and never to neglect your own flesh and blood? I admit, their passion and righteous indignation often got the better of the prophets. They frequently pushed family and friends away. They were consumed by God's message. They were overwhelmed by their anger. They always shouted and never listened. Abraham Joshua Heschel remarked, the prophet is human, yet he employs notes one octave too high for our eyes, ears to hear. And the brilliance of our rabbis was to take the prophets' words out of their own times and place them as weekly 
contemporary reminders. They have us read these words of the Haftarah at the exact moment we might be thinking, wow, even though I'm really hungry right now, this hunger is my path to holiness. No, this Yom Kippur fast is not enough, and it is not even the main thing. It is so we understand what hunger means. It is so we think of those who do not have enough food to feed their families. It is so we think not of the bagels and locks waiting for us after a long day of prayer and repentance, but instead of those who are hungry and homeless, only miles from our own homes. And it is a shame that we too often chant the prophets in Hebrew rather than dwell on the meaning of their words. The Hebrew insulates us from their all too contemporary message. We need to rediscover their passion. We need to reclaim a measure of the prophet's anger. David White offers us this counsel. Anger is the deepest form of compassion for another, for the world, for the self, for a life, for the body, for a family, and for all our ideals, all vulnerable and all possibly about to hurt. Anger is the purest form of care. The internal living flame of anger always illuminates what we belong to, what we wish to protect, and what we are willing to hazard ourselves for. And White points us towards a truth we must reclaim. Anger is about becoming attuned to the world's hurt and allowing it to make us do more than just curl up in bed and cry. It is about lighting a fire so that we get up each and every day and get out there and start fixing things, or at the very least start trying to change things in our own little world. We are not allowed to look at the world and shrug. We are not allowed to become exacerbated and lose hope. And while we cannot hold all the pro world's problems in at one heart, we each do have the strength to hold a few. Start somewhere. Start fixing something. Get out there and do something about all this mess. There is plenty of brokenness to be repaired, and that begins with the emotion of anger. Of course, we cannot and should not stay angry all the time, and too often we confuse anger with rage. This is what we keep getting wrong. Anger is about concern. It begins with justice and a feeling about what must be righted. It is about believing that this must be improved and can be made better. Rage is about pointing fingers and assigning blame. It is about shouting at others, whether that be politicians or even friends. Rage leads to measuring success against the missteps of political opponents and our ideological foes. And too often, rage takes us down a path of vengeance. Anger, instead, comes from a soul that the believes the world can be made better. The world is deserving of repair, and it begins with concern for others and for the world. 
It stems from a belief that this crumbling earth is deserving of our blessings and our efforts to improve it. Anger is about channeling the chutzpah of the prophets and saying, I may very well be the person who can bring some healing. That is why we welcome the prophet Elijah to every baby naming. We say, in essence, this kid might really fix things. Rage begins with the clenched fist, and anger emerges within the heart. Anger leads us to bringing a measure of certainty to all this uncertainty. The other way, the other emotion, involves some shouting too. And instead of shouting our passion and anger, we shout joy at all this uncertainty. We sing for joy even though life is so maddeningly random. Again, there is confusion. We think control offers certainty. We think that if we shout louder, bring more fervor to our songs, or recite our prayers perfectly at their exact appointed hour, then our fate will be better sealed. But decisiveness about our prayers does not change the randomness of life. There is much beyond the reach of our hands. There is much beyond the influence of our prayers. Look at the frightening Unatana Tokev prayer we chanted. On Rosh Hashanah, this is written, and on the fast of Yom Kippur, this is sealed. How many will pass away from this world? How many will be born into it? Who will live and who will die? Who will reach the ripeness of age? And who will be taken before their time? Who by fire and who by water? And what is this prayer about? It is about affirming the haphazard and randomness of life. The back and forthness of this list gives voice to life's uncertainty. Now, people might be saying, I want more certainty. I want my rabbi to tell me if I pray this prayer better, then everything is going to be fine and okay. But I will not. I will not offer fantasies. Such guarantees are an illusion. Go elsewhere if you want magic. I can offer healing. I can promise that singing will dispel some of that fear. I can offer the assurance that our prayers can help us push some of that uncertainty into a corner of our hearts and help to keep it tucked away there. All we can do is sing, and all we should do is sing. And I know this is an imperfect answer, but then again, life is an imperfect journey, and there is so much to fear. How are we going to conquer it? That is an impossible quest, and there is only one possibility. Figure out where you can hold these fears and how you can more than occasionally cast them aside. As many people know by now, I was in a bike accident five weeks ago. As you can see, I'm okay. And although my ribs and shoulder are still bruised, I will be back on the bike as soon as the replacement parts arrive, 
and the bike can be repaired. Here's the story of what happened. I was finishing a quick 25-mile ride and was at the 20-mile mark when I decided at the last minute to add a hill and then loop back to my house by way of Huntington Harbor. And this new route involved going, back, going on more heavily trafficked road. And I was rounding a bend when all of a sudden I saw black in front of me. And I quickly realized that it was the side of a car pulling out from, of all places, an auto body shop. And so I squeezed my brakes. And my rear tire slid sideways, and I heard a terrible crunch as my right side slammed into the car. And the next thing I know, I am lying on the pavement, writhing in pain, while people are screaming, someone call 911. I can't get a signal. Can anyone get a signal? And I remember thinking, of course you can't get a signal. This is Long Island. And then I thought, all this screaming and shouting, call 911, is about me. And then I had the most frightening thought. That's a good idea. And someone else kept shouting, hey, buddy, don't move. And another screamed, is there someone should I, I should call? And I said, call Susie. Her number's on my road ID on my ankle. And Su John called Susie, but she did not pick up. And everyone was screaming, and I guess the good kind of shouting really does come from the heart. And Bill put his hand on my shoulder and said, don't move. The EMTs are on their way. You're going to be all right. And the ambulance arrived, and they loaded me onto a stretcher, and then they gave me my phone, and I called Susie, and she answered, and I said, hi, sweetheart. I'm okay, but I was in an accident, and they're taking me to the hospital. And then I added words that would only be heard in a rabbi's house. You should go do your congregant's funeral first, and then meet me at Huntington Hospital after you're finished. <laughs> Are you sure, she asked. I'm coming now, she shouted. No, I insisted. I'm going to be okay. I love you. See you soon. And two hours later, as well as an IV and some CAT scans, I walked out of the hospital. No broken bones, no head or neck trauma, no internal injuries. To say I am really, really lucky is an enormous understatement. And I keep thinking, if I was going a little faster, he would have slammed into me and sent me flying over the car's hood and perhaps into oncoming traffic. If he was delayed 10 seconds, I would have whizzed right by and he would never have come to, I would never have come to know his name. And those differences can be measured in inches and seconds. Well-meaning friends kept saying, God was watching out for you. And I also keep thinking, what if? Why me? What about others who are not so lucky? I have a list of those names carved into my soul. I've been doing this rabbi thing for a long time, 30 years to be exact. And all I can say for sure is there is no such thing as a protective bubble. And I don't know why. I have no perfect answers to all this randomness and all this uncertainty.
and I don't believe anyone who offers them. I am hesitant about certitudes. This does not mean I should stop wearing a helmet. A new one is already waiting for me. Just because life is random and there are no guarantees does not mean we should take unnecessary risks and not take precautions. To any of my students who decide to ride a bike without wearing a helmet, I promise you this. You will have your rabbi to answer to in addition to your parents. And on another important note, get the vaccine. Wear a mask in crowds. Prayer is no substitute for common sense and good medicine. The Unatana Tokef prayer affirms life's randomness. And I admit, it is disquieting. We crave certainty. And still we sing its words with joy. We offer this upbeat tune that belies the prayer's frightening imagery. And that tune is the truer word. The song exemplifies our best response. The energetic and lively way we sing Unatana Tokef summarizes how we should approach all this randomness and uncertainty. The cantor's job is safe. Okay, so. But you got it. The secret is the song. Prayer is not really about theology. It is instead about the music. And only that can fill the cracks in our hearts. Only the song can placate our fears. And while I lie awake at night, I can still hear that crunch as my body smashed into that car. I can also still feel the hand of a stranger on my shoulder. And I can still hear his words, you're going to be all right. I also can still feel my grandfather's hand on my back when I first learned how to ride a bike. And I can still hear his voice behind me from some 50 years ago. You're doing it, Stephen. No more training wheels. You're riding a bike. And those feelings will get me back on the road again. His shouts of joy behind me carry me forward. Our tradition songs pacify my fears. There is a road forward. It is carved by finding a new self. And it is paved with two emotions. Be joyful, get angry, and that is the path to a new self. That is the road forward. Get angry and ignite action. Be joyful and spark happiness. These must be our twin responses to all this uncertainty. Hold both of those together. Hold both of these at once.